Amen. Excuse me. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, grace and peace to you. Uh, very glad to have everybody on this gloomy morning. And this morning, um, we are approaching the once and future coming of our Lord Jesus Christ through the lens of, you guessed it, the first murder. So I'm sorry to disappoint those of you who came for sweet animals in a manger and a choir of angels. Um, I have only um, a murder for you, Cain and Abel. And though the story um, is not quite a Christmas story, and though it's short on sentimental value, the story of Cain and Abel is not short on meaning. Now, before we actually get into it and start picking it apart, let's backtrack a little bit and talk about what we learned last week. And that was, uh, it all came from this promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse, verse 15. And it's the central promise of the Scripture, and it sets the storyline for the rest of Scripture. It reads, verse 15, I will put enmity, this is God speaking to the serpent who deceived the man and the woman in the garden. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. In other words, it's a promise of destruction and victory. Destruction for the serpent, that cunning figure in the garden who deceived the woman to disobey. And victory for the human race through the woman who will bear a seed or a descendant to crush the head of the serpent. In other words, God's answer to sin and to death and to the serpent is a promised child, the birth of this Seed. And the birth of Cain and Abel, which begins our chapter, represents um, the very beginning of this struggle between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Here it begins with these two brothers. Now, before we jump into the story, um, I want to start somewhere else and we'll make our way there. And it may seem like a strange place to start, but I want to ask you a question. It's a very simple one, and it's, do you fear God? Do you fear God? Now, fear is not about terror or dread or whatever other images it might conjure up in your mind. In its biblical usage, fear is synonymous with obedience. So to fear God is to obey God. God. Psalm 111 makes the point quite well. Verse 10 of that psalm, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and good understanding have all those who do His commandments. So wisdom is ranged alongside understanding, and fear alongside obedience to the commandments. And fear is the means by which we obtain wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that begs the question, well, what is wisdom? Now, understood biblically, wisdom is the knowledge of good and evil. Wisdom is the ability to know in a world of spin and ambiguity what is good and what is not good. It's the ability to see between the two and to discern what is right and what is wrong. 
So it goes like this, the logic does. God alone is wise. He alone knows what is good and evil. And we become wise when we render obedience to His commands. Right? It's learned, not necessarily um, by reading, not necessarily um, even by hearing, but it's done by obeying. And there we learn wisdom. So we're counseled time and again in the Proverbs to be, not to be rather, wise in our own eyes. Not to be wise in our own eyes. And that is supposing that we know what's good and evil. The Proverbs says, do you see someone who is wise in their own eyes? He says, there's more hope for a fool than for him. Instead of that, the scripture says we are to fear God. Meaning we are to let him decide what is good and right and we are simply to obey. So we have two things then. First is a distrust of our own judgment, right? A, a, a sober suspicion um, of this thought that we can decide between the two and we know where the right lies. So there's that. And then also, too, there's an unwavering obedience to the commands. Regardless of what we think is right or wrong, an obedience to what God says. And these things... Um, are the beginning of wisdom. So hold that in mind for a moment, and let's work our way through the story of Cain and Abel. Beginning now in verse 1, it says, Now the man, that's Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, some have supposed Cain and Abel were twins, since there's only one conception named. Now, whatever the case, the text doesn't provide us with a lot of detail regarding the life of these brothers. It's very quick in its uh, rendering. It leaves silent their early years, and it begins again with the brothers and their work. Abel was a shepherd, that is, a keeper of the flocks, and Cain was a farmer, a tiller of the ground. Now, as we make our way through the story of Cain and Abel, we'll find that Cain is very much associated with the ground. He's always related to the ground. The ground and him are always set beside one another. And that may be the first indication of the character of Cain. It may be tipping us off that there's a sinister air about him. Now, the ground, remember, was cursed because of the sin of Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you, and it's also a symbol of death. Chapter 3, verse 19, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So here is Cain, and he works this ground, and he brings his offering to God from the ground, and he's set in opposition to his brother Abel. Now, Abel is just the Hebrew word hebel, and all it means is breath or vapor. And so we have something very interesting between Cain and Abel. One is associated with the ground and the other is associated with the breath or air. And now these two sons, they issue from the two sides of their father who was made from the ground and who had the divine life breathed into him. So the brothers represent two trajectories. They're different, two different ways of life, as it were an earthly or a worldly existence. 
from the ground and a heavenly or spiritual existence, um, able meaning breath. Now the narrative continues with urgency, verse five or three and five, three through five. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought an offering of the firstlings, or also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Now the existence of sacrifice, that is the offerings that these brothers bring to God, is presented without comment. It's simply there. We're given no explanation. And it's presented as an intrinsic part of worship, indeed as the meaning of worship. And it's really no different today. Though the outer manifestation of worship is different, the inner content is the same. Our worship, our service to God is always an offering. It's always a sacrifice that we bring to Him. Though we don't present an animal, though we don't present the fruit of the ground, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Worship is always sacrifice. And what we find in the scriptures is that one's offering or their sacrifice to God was always connected to their person. It was always connected to the life that they lived. Time and again, God rebukes the, uh, the children of Israel for bringing him empty sacrifice. That is, bulls and lambs and goats, but behind that, disobedience. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. It says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. So in other words... The physical sacrifice, a quartered and roasted goat, or the fruit of the ground offered upon the altar, was not in and of itself pleasing to God. What was pleasing to God was the sacrifice, or rather what the sacrifice meant and what it symbolized. A life offered up in obedience to God. You remember when the prophet Samuel rebuked um, the king Saul for his disobedience. He says, 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. So what made an offering acceptable to God was the integrity and character of the person behind it. So instead, he corrects his people. Verse 17 of Isaiah chapter 1, learn to do good. This is what God wants. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. So in sum, a person and their offering mirror one another. They are indicative of one another. And we see this principle at work among the brothers. Verse 3 and 4, Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground, Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. So, the matter is not so much what the brothers bring, 
Cain's not rejected for bringing from the fruit of the ground, but how they offer what they bring. So in distinction from his brother, Abel brought the firstlings or the firstborn of his flock and their choice portions. In other words, the sacrifice of Abel was costly. A sacrifice that is worthy to the one to whom it is given. You remember when King David um, was buying a plot of land on which to build the new temple. And the man who owned it at the time just said, Take it, have it for the Lord's purposes. And David responded to him and said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. We, in our offering to God, meaning our entire lives, but principally located in the act of worship, what we're engaged in this morning, in that act we are to bring our best to God. Not under compulsion, because we have to, but of our free will. Because in God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we have found infinite worth. We have found something to live for and to die for, and therefore we bring a worthy sacrifice before Him. Malachi chapter 1, verses 8 and 11. The Lord says, When you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 11, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. So in their respective offerings, we learn something of the inner character and condition of the brothers as we do ourselves, what one brings in worship and how one brings it can never be disconnected from what's on the inside. And nothing reveals the motive behind an offering more than when it's rejected. Verse 5, For Cain and for his offering God had no regard, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So Cain's reaction is indicative of his heart. If he gave his offering from sincerity, why would he then respond with anger? Disappointment is understandable, and certainly repentance, but not anger. Here is an offering made from obligation, or worse still, an attempt to control God. Very often you'll find that's the hidden motive in giving, right? In um, offering something to someone, be it God or otherwise. It puts the recipient in debt to the giver, right? It bends the recipient to the will of the giver. I scratch your back, and so now you are obligated to scratch my back. You are obligated to return it, and when I want something or desire something, you ought to give it to me. In other words, it's not given sincerely. It comes with strings attached and a concealed motive behind it. And Cain's motive is not lost on us. We too enter into these kind of bargains with God, exchanging our service, our offering, for His blessing. 
And what happens when God does not uphold his end of the bargain? Like Cain, we become very angry. But that's not worship, right? That's bargaining with God. That's haggling with God. That's like what the pagans do. It's very far from the ideal of sacrifice, which is presented to us in the figure of Mary from Bethany. Remember before Jesus, um, in the Gospel of John, and in fact in the other Gospels as well, before Jesus was going to um, be crucified, the same week of his death, Mary took a pound of very costly perfume. And the Scripture is very um, interested in us getting that. It's a huge offering that she brings, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, and the fragrance fills the room, and then she begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And she does this for no other reason than her love for him. There is a true offering, pouring out the best of what she had at his feet for no other reason than worship. But in the case of Cain, graciously, there's intervention. Verse 6, the Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Here is a repeat of the scene in the garden. God intervenes and attempts to turn Cain from his path just as he did with his parents. Cain's countenance, or more literally, his face had fallen. And God comes to him and invites Cain to do well, or to do what is right, that his face might be lifted up again. Now sometimes our fallen face, that is either depression or misery, or a combination of the both, is a spiritual and moral dilemma, stemming not from some sort of physical imbalance in our body, but from not doing well, as we see with Cain here. And the solution is not to seek this or that medical treatment, but to practice righteousness. If you do well, will not your face be lifted? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 8, Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your Bones. So, opportunity remains for Cain, but he needs to act with purpose. God warns him and encourages him that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but he says, you must master it. Verse 7. So, here, sin is likened to a predatory animal. Given the fact that we were introduced to the serpent, It only makes sense here that what's envisioned is a coiled snake lying at the door, ready to strike. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, if you can recall, the language of this verse, its desire is for you and you must master it, sounds familiar. It's a deliberate callback in parallel to chapter 3, verse 16. Notice the similarity. Yet your desire, God is speaking to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So, a rather unflattering comparison is drawn here between sin on the one hand and the woman of Eve on the other. 
Now that seems a bit harsh, but remember these stories operate on many levels. Eve is also the bearer of salvation. On the one hand, she's the mother of all living from whom the promised seed to redeem mankind would come. But here she's also somehow analogous to sin. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Sin, its desire is for you, but you must master it. So the question is, how so? What is this comparison all about? Well, it takes us back to the garden and the first disobedience. Remember, Adam was given charge over the garden. It was his responsibility to tend and to keep it. And where did Adam go wrong? Where did he fail in his vocation? God gives us the answer. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree. Adam's problem was that, this is not general counsel for every man, is that he listened to the voice of his wife. Rather than opposing the serpent's lies, he was passive. And he went along with the situation compliantly. He ate. That's all the text tells us. In other words, he listened to the wrong voice. He listened to the voice of the serpent speaking through his wife and not God. And Cain, as we find him here, is in the same position as Adam. The serpent is again speaking to his heart, desiring to have him. And Cain is faced with a choice, an opportunity to succeed where his father failed. Is Cain going to listen to the voice of sin, as Adam did? Or is he going to rule over it and master it by listening to the voice of God who bids him to do well? Now, this primeval temptation, first presented to Adam and then again to Cain, and then you'll find all throughout Genesis, again to Abraham and again and again, the same temptation is picked up later in the Scriptures, particularly the Proverbs, and it's depicted as a choice between two women. Every one of us, we can either listen to and obey this woman called Lady Wisdom or this other figure called Lady Folly. Now, the two women are presented to us, if you want to do a little homework, in Proverbs chapter 9. We have the Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, and both women are fleshed out in Proverbs chapter 7 and 8. Proverbs chapter 7 is Lady Folly, and Proverbs chapter 8 is Lady Wisdom. Now Eve, as we have her in the garden, or post-garden, is Lady Folly. She has been deceived by the serpent, and therefore she is a deceiver. She gives to her husband, and she becomes an agent of the serpent. And so to listen to the voice of Lady Folly is to choose death. It's to take from the tree of knowledge and to define what is good and what's evil for oneself, which is the essence of sin. John Webster, um, in his sermon on wisdom, he says, The essence of human rebellion against God, the essence of human fallenness, is a refusal to let God tell the difference between good and evil. Sin is the folly of thinking that, apart from God and by exercising our best powers of mind and conscience, we can master the distinction between good and evil. That's Lady Folly. She invites us, come, take of the fruit, eat, figure it out for yourself, define good and evil on your own. 
Proverbs says there's more hope for a fool than for a man or woman who would take and eat from what she is offering. Now, on the other hand, there's Lady Wisdom, and she's the ideal and righteous Eve. She's what Eve is meant to be. And she stands at the street corners and, and, and shouts, Proverbs chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, Whoever is naive, let him turn and hear. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat my food, eat of my food, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. So this Eve is the voice of wisdom. And she bids us to shun the serpent and to fear the Lord. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that is what the man in the garden failed to do. Right? He listened to the voice of his wife. Lady Folly, and he did not fear God. And now that same choice is presented before Cain. Who is he going to listen to? Is he going to listen to the serpent, Lady Folly, or is he going to listen to God, the voice of wisdom? And it's the same choice that's in every moment of, 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 of temptation, where we could go one way or the other. It's the same choice before us. It's either God or the serpent. It's either wisdom or madness. It's either fear or indifference. From every corner of the world, that same slithering voice speaks to us, tempting us to take of the fruit and to eat. But instead, we must fear the living God, not being wise in our own eyes, thinking we can pinpoint the difference, but instead pulling our hand back from the tree and listening to the command of God. And we can do so because we've been given the Spirit of Jesus who mastered that same serpent, not in the garden, but in the wilderness. The, spirit, the serpent rather spoke his crafty words, and each time Jesus responded, It is written. He feared God, and through Jesus we can fear God too and make the right choice. So how is Cain ultimately going to respond? Verses 8 and 9. Cain told his Abel, Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And so with this first fratricide, Outside the garden, the promised war begins. Cain failed to shut the door on the serpent as his father before him. And instead, he entertained his anger. And he allowed it to boil over into hatred and murder. And he struck down his very brother in the field. Now, many years later, our Lord would comment upon this event, speaking to his enemies. First, or John, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 44. He says, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Cain's burning anger cannot be explained in mere psychological or sociological terms, it defies reasonable explanation. It was instead an expression of a still greater, more primal rage and anger 
That is the desires of the serpent who was a murderer from the beginning. Cain opened his heart to the serpent and he was mastered by sin. And he was twisted and bent to do the will of the serpent. He rose up against his brother and killed him. And just like he did with his father Adam, he invites Cain to come in Stand, to come and stand in the truth. But instead, Cain shrinks back into the darkness. He says, I don't know. I don't know where my brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? Right? The tragic irony in those words. Yes, Cain is his brother's keeper. And so God responds, verse 10, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So interestingly, Abel, he never speaks at all in the narrative, but his blood does. It cries out from the ground for vindication. His innocent blood testifies against his brother Cain, crying for just retribution. Now, this story, right, the tale of two brothers, is picked up in 1 John chapter 3, by the Apostle John, and he sees Cain and Abel as types or as symbols for the world and the church. Um, I'll read you uh, a little lengthy section from there, but follow along. He says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know this. We know love by this, rather, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So you see what's going on here, right? John understands the brothers and their relationship as emblematic for all humanity, split up into two groups, the church on the one hand and the world on the other, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The serpent, the serpent rather, was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says, and here John proclaims to us the message from the beginning, that we should love one another. So the seed of the serpent, that is the world, are defined by their hatred for the seed of the woman, which is the church, who are defined by their love. So hence, the apostle reminds us, do not be surprised if the world hates you, verse 13. He's in effect saying to that church and to us, it has been this way from the beginning. This is nothing new. Our situation, the hostility and the persecution and the sort of seeming unmotivated rage that can come against us is but the latest expression in a battle that's as old as humanity. The battle of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he says that we trace our lineage not back to Cain, but to Abel, who was the first martyr. 
Jesus would speak to the generation um, that he ministered in, and he says that the blood uh, from righteous Abel all the way to Zechariah, who was murdered between um, the temple and the altar, it says, will be reckoned upon this generation. So Abel's the first martyr. And, and what John means to say is that persecution, then, is our lot in this age. We're not Cain. We're Abel. Hatred and murder are not our M.O. Love is. And when we love, right, when we lead with love, that puts us in a place of danger and vulnerability as sheep in the midst of wolves. And we'll find this theme of the older brother rising up against the younger brother repeated all throughout Genesis. Um, initially with, uh, with Ishmael um, mocking and persecuting his brother Isaac. And then again with Esau pursuing and wanting to kill his brother Jacob. And then again with Joseph, whose older brothers sell him into slavery for nothing other than their hatred of him. So it's not a question, right? Well, let's back up. Remember where we are in that scheme of things. We're always the younger brother. So it's not a question of whether or not the world will hate us, but how we are going to respond when it does. And a sober understanding of who we are, the younger brother, Abel, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the younger brother, that keeps us from being surprised by persecution. This is our lot in the world. And when we're not surprised, that it keeps us from reverting to Cain-like measures. When persecution strikes, right, when things get hard in the workplace or at home, when it just seems like, why are people against me? Just because maybe you're a believer. When that happens... And we are not resolved in our hearts to be like Abel, right? To be defined by our love. We will strike back and we'll trade like for like. And we will betray our calling and align ourselves with the older brother Cain. Instead, we must be ready to suffer, to bear pain rather than to inflict it. But our love toward outsiders is not the apostles' main concern. It's our love toward one another. The commandment from the beginning is that we ought to love each other. Cain hated his brother and murdered him in cold blood. We love our brothers, and we instead give our lives up for them. John says in verse 16, we know love by this. Hatred takes life. Love gives life. Our calling as the seed of the woman and the younger brother is to love, not in word or with tongue, but in deed and truth, verse 18. To love in concrete acts of service and in sacrifice. And when we do that, well, or as the scripture says, verse, or Hebrews 13, 16, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So if we go back to Abel's received offering and Cain's rejected offering, why? What's the, what's the reason behind it? It was for love that God had regard for Abel and his offering, and for hatred that God had no regard for Cain and his offering. We are our brother's keeper, and when we keep our brothers and sisters, our offering is pleasing and acceptable to God. So, let's begin to draw things to a close now. Abel is murdered, and the story of the two brothers comes to a very bleak end. The righteous seed is struck down, and the unrighteous seed goes on to marry. And he has children, and he builds vast cities. 
one lineage is stamped out while the other prospers. And as we noted, the blood that was sown upon the ground multiplies exponentially. Not long from now, um, the Genesis narrative will read, The wickedness of man was great upon the earth. Abel is struck down and Cain goes to produce so many other sons and daughters in his likeness until we come next week to um, the figure of Noah when the whole earth was corrupted. So it's quite a cheerful story, right? Merry Christmas. But near the end, um, a ray of hope breaks in. Chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also was born, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So the promised seed of the woman was struck down in Abel, but it was resurrected in Seth. And Seth is not merely another child, but, as Eve says, another offspring, literally another seed appointed to take the place of Abel. So it would seem that that first contest there outside the garden was won by the serpent in the rage of Cain and in the murder of Abel. But here, the birth of Seth ensures that there is a future for the promise that God made to the woman. Another seed is appointed. Another seed is established. And from Enosh, um, the son of Seth, comes Noah, whose name means rest. And Noah is going to be the next great seed in the story. But let's draw things to a close now by turning our attention toward our Lord Jesus, who really we've been speaking about this whole time. The murder of righteous and blameless Abel, whose blood still speaks, the author of Hebrews tells us, prefigures the crucifixion of Jesus, the serpent crusher. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24 say. It says, You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that's his blood, who speaks, which speaks rather a better, which speaks better than the blood of of Abel. The blood of Jesus speaks better than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out against and it condemns his brother, calling for retribution. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus does not cry out to God against us, but for us. It's not a word of condemnation that the blood of Jesus spilt on the cross speaks against us. But it's a word of justification. It's a word of restoration. The blood of Jesus is our advocate before God the Father and our defender before the enemy when we would be accused. It speaks to God on our behalf. And it says this one is covered. And it speaks to our own heart. And it stills our conscience when it's afflicted by our own failures. So then, unlike Abel, I mean, excuse me, unlike Adam and unlike Cain, let's come to the light where we can be forgiven. 1 John chapter 1, 7 and 9, 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. It speaks for us and not against us. And thus, if Abel's death prefigures Jesus' death, then Seth's birth prefigures Jesus' resurrection. In his resurrection, Jesus is the greater Seth, the appointed seed in whom the human race starts over again and once for all. In his days, the days of Jesus, men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Or as Isaiah 53, you guys know this passage. Let it come to you with new depth now that we've looked at Genesis. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, or in the language of Genesis 3.15, the very same word, to bruise him. The Lord was pleased to bruise him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, and then it says, he will see his offspring, or literally translated, he will see his seed, and he will prolong his days, the resurrection of Jesus, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So, as we turn now our hearts to Holy Communion, which is nothing other than a commemoration and a celebration of the seed of the woman, the greater Abel and the greater Seth. Let's come in thanksgiving. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God became the Son of a woman that he might set us free. And bring us into life. So I invite you now to come up and to receive the elements of communion, um, to take them back to your place and to, um, well, to thank the Lord and to confess, step into the light that we can receive and partake with joy. Go ahead and do that now, and I'll lead us in communion in just one moment.